you started your wholesale business and you're finding success, you want to start scaling, start creating your legacy. You're looking for a blueprint. Our three day event, June 16th to June 18th, teaches the blueprint for what you'll need to grow your wholesaling business. The forms, the processes, the systems, the sales, the A to Z from finding sellers to dispositioning the property to all the transaction coordination and everything else in between. When you leave our event, you'll have all the confidence and certainty you're gonna need to be able to create the financial freedom, the time freedom, so that you can live the life that you want to live. Don't hesitate, space is limited. Go to disruptors.com slash blueprint to secure your spot. Thank you for checking out today's episode and hope you enjoy the show. Shout out Seven. to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We real estate disruptors. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today, we have someone that I consider to be a mentor, Larry Yash, with SEAL Team Leaders, and he flew in from Park City, Utah, to talk about lessons he's learned from 200 successful Navy SEAL missions and how they apply to business. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, sales trainer, and every month, we help hundreds of people buy more houses at deeper margins. If you want more information about that, DM me the word sales on Instagram, and I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires. The information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take uh, consistent action, you will become one. And this show is brought to you by our sister company, InvestorLift. Get access to over 2 million cash buyers across the country. Go to InvestorLift.com, put in disruptors, and you'll get 10% off. If you get value out of the show, please tag it from below. Share this episode right now. That way, we can all grow together. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Larry to answer. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So normally I ask people what got them into real estate, but um, we didn't really connect necessarily through real estate. We got uh, connected through collective genius. Yep. Right. So I guess uh, starting off, what would you consider your role or your profession or what do you consider yourself? Definitely not real estate. Yeah. My one real estate experience was very, very bad. (laughs) Buying an overpriced house in San Diego in 2000. Six, I think 2007 yeah. it was a disaster scene so yeah I still sting from that one a little bit yeah uh, my role uh, especially in the real estate space is if you are good at real estate investment if you're good at development uh, you probably are crap at building a team and managing yeah. a, a functioning business that's what we do yeah. so our job is to bring professionalism and structure to an organization through leadership, team development, uh, business structure planning, kind of all the core concepts that are needed to have a high functioning business. Got it. All right. So how did you get into that? It is a, it is a roundabout story in that. You can keep going. Sorry. You can keep going. (laughs) It's a roundabout story. So originally, uh, my background was as a Navy SEAL, so I was an officer in the SEAL teams for a bunch of years, and I got injured, and after a botched surgery, knew I wasn't going to be able to be a SEAL anymore, which then led me to what's next. Uh, all I'd ever want to do is be a SEAL, mm-hmm. uh, be in the military. And entrepreneurship wasn't a big driving thing for me. It was more a logical means to the future I wanted to create than a big driving passion. And uh, my specific form of leadership was strongly based in education of, of developing the people around me to make good choices as opposed to direct leadership. So I got into building training companies 
and yeah. it was a series of them before I ever got to leadership development. So one thing I remember in one of our conversations was that um, you went from being a Navy SEAL to starting a company. Right. And Straight there were, out. Not a good plan. And there were some surprises <laughs> from the difference between levels of commitment between a SEAL and yeah. civilian population. What were those differences? Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny and painful at the same time. Uh, one of the best parts about being a SEAL was the team. Like we literally call it the teams and the team is not only the team, but the, the men I got to serve with the biggest thing I miss. Uh, and one of the best parts about it, what gave me the confidence to go into horrible environments and impossible missions with impossible odds was that every seal that worked for me, if they said they were going to do something, they did it, mm -hmm. which was just for me, that was like breathing. Like if you say you're going to do something, do it. And if someone says they're going to do something, they're going to do it. And with a SEAL... With 100% confidence. 100% confidence. And they would, I'd say 80% of the time, they would do it at 100% of the standard of performance. 10% uh, of the time, they would do it at like 120%. Like they would always go a little over. And then 10% of the time, they'd do it at like 200%. Where yeah. you ask a guy to do an inventory and he built software to automate inventories. Like that, yeah. that, but that happened regularly. So I get to the civilian world, I hire people, they say they're going to do something and they didn't Yeah, <laughs> on a regular basis. Like it was, if so it wasn't hundred percent done. No, if someone did something to 80% standard, 50% of the time, they were a high performer and that's pathetic. So, uh, we were talking earlier, you know, uh, I used to work at Intel. Yeah. Right. And like regularly, like my boss would come by, he's like, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. And every time he did that, I was like. I'm literally doing what they pay me to do. <laughs> Just that. <laughs> and they're like, why? Like, we can't believe yeah. like how talented you are. I was like, no, like, so I'll share my, this with my friends and they laugh because they had the same thing too. Like, yeah. why do they keep telling us we're doing a great job when we're just doing? Because most people do not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a big thing. Yeah. Anything else? That was a major takeaway from uh, <laughs> the surprises? Two others. So I, I always share these three things and these three things were like, breathing eating and drinking water as a seal like it just things you did to mm -hmm. survive one was doing what you said you were going to do the holding responsibility the second one was receiving feedback like as a seal as an officer in the seals they always did what they said they were going to do and we would give each other direct feedback all the time and they beat any sort of ego out of you in seal training mm -hmm. because if your ego if i know something I'm putting the, if I, if I go into something knowing, then I'm putting the whole team at risk. If I'm not willing to take feedback immediately and implement it exactly right on the next mission, I'm putting everyone at risk. So giving and receiving feedback and most importantly, implementing it was again, just like eating. Like that's what you do. Every time you do something, someone's going to tell you how you, sh how you could do it better. And you implemented it. Mm -hmm. The third thing was planning. It amazes me that organizations at best do strategic planning once a year. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it's like, well, we just, every problem that comes up, we kind of figure it out on the way. If we have inner like rocks or intermediate things in the, the year, like it's up to someone to figure out what to do. We planned to do everything. Like I would share, like we finished training. You've got 16 of the best the country has to offer, we're going to all go get burritos after the training event. We put a plan together. 
which you'd laugh like wait you're taking the highest performing people in the world and like you'd actually plan as how you're just going to go to the the local burrito shop and get burritos mm-hmm. yes i mean that we planned for everything and not only did we plan we planned to fail because we know the one mission that wasn't going to happen was the one that we planned for right and that just isn't done in the civilian world so those three things holding responsibility giving receiving feedback and planning were the biggest eye-opening of people just don't do that at all in the civilian yeah. world so let's go back a little bit because we you know we talked about you know the lessons you learn from being a navy seal right and there's other people out there that are notable people follow right there's jocko willink there's yep. uh david goggins right um so for you like let's talk about what what uh qualifications does someone have to go through to be a navy seal because you've kind of shared also like you know when you guys go in there is a very specific reason why you have to go in. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about first, like what it takes to become a Navy SEAL and then what missions, kind of missions you guys get to, got to go to. <laughs> so becoming a Navy SEAL is not easier. It actually got harder after 9-11 cause pre 9-11, like I remember I went through training in 1998, uh, even in 98, 99, if someone asked what you were, it's like, oh, I'm a SEAL, they didn't know what you're talking about. I mean, I would say seven out of 10 people really didn't know what a Navy SEAL was. And th- that awareness that changed in 9-11 then meant a lot more people wanted to go. Uh, for me, coming from the Naval Academy, so I didn't go in the enlisted route, I didn't go straight into the SEALs, I went to the Naval Academy first, which in and of itself is very difficult going to that school and then from there i had to compete with some of the best the country has to offer to get a spot just to try to go to seal training so it went from twelve thousand applicants for my freshman class to 1200 then from those 1200 is about 250 that wanted to be a seal freshman year by the time we got to senior year only 53 were qualified those 53 had to compete for 15 spots so just to get one of those 15 spots was really really hard yeah and then you show up to training, we had 135 guys show up and 11 graduated six months later. I mean, it's crazy. And you hear these like nightmare stories, right? And I don't know how accurate they are. Uh, you know, like being thrown in the water in the deep cold or... Uh, <laughs> there, that was the it. worst nightmare story you heard <laughs> was like probably one of the easier days. Like it is so much worse than you no and they they have those documentaries where Mm. they'll show the whole training class yeah like the longest documentary is 10 hours long that's one day and you have (laughs) six months of those days like that you just get a fraction of what they put you through um and so one thing that's fascinating is you don't go on the easy missions no so what kind of missions does a navy seal go to the, the way I describe it is in every business, there's competition, right? Every, every company, there's competition. In the competition that we're doing, say, in the real estate space, you might lose a deal, right? Mm-hmm. My competition tried to kill me, right? Like, that's the level of competition that we're talking about. If they win, I die. If I win, they're either taken out or they're dead, mm-hmm. right? They're taken out of, of the battle space. So that's the first thing. The second thing is they didn't send us anywhere nice. Like they're not sending you to nice places. They're sending you to you were stationed in Hawaii. Places. I got to visit for training and then they'd send me to shithole. Some like horrible place that I had to go go live and operate in. Yeah. It, when I was fortunate, 
that every time I deployed, it was to a real world mission, real world action. And so, and that's rare. SEALs cover the whole world 24 7, 365. So the average SEAL is going to deploy and never go to war. Just the timing that I had and the team I was on and the locations that I'm in, I got to, to really do my job. And where we do our job's not nice, right? Mm -hmm. That's where bad people are trying to do bad things. And on top of that, we're very expensive. A SEAL costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to get through just the six months of, of BUDS. And that's the, the start of a two and a half year cycle. So you'll do two years of training before you ever get to a team. You get to a team, you do 18 months more of training before you go and do your job, go to a deployment. So there's hundreds of thousands of dollars up to a million dollars for a SEAL just to go do their job. After a couple of those deployments, SEALs are worth a couple million dollars each. So a 16-man platoon is worth $30, $40 million. They're not going to risk that if there's a cheaper unit that can do it. So we only got missions that everyone else said was impossible. Like, nope, we can't do it. Nope, we can't do it. Okay, that's the ones we get. It's crazy to hear, like, it's almost run like a business. Right. A very uh, the the <laughs> navy is a very inefficient and effective business because yeah. it's huge. But yeah, it's a business. Right. But like we're making business decisions. Yeah. Right. We're not going to spend thirty million, risk thirty million here if we can just get it down for yeah, hundred million. If we can risk thirty thousand for this unit, and they can accomplish a mission, then they get the the mission, not us. Yes. And it's the same thing. I got injured. I didn't choose to stop being a seal. I got hurt. And as soon as I was a no longer a value producing asset like I, they were done with me well different than the connection uh module yeah. in your, it, no, in your completely book. <laughs> yeah there was i mean there are guys care about me but because i didn't produce value anymore it was literally i was yeah. dead to the organization um so one part that also impressed me when we were talking about your story was uh one of the missions you had to accomplish in uh iraq as far as securing the oil fields yeah because i remember like watching on the news like this was not like a Hey, let's go secure the oil fields. It was yeah. like an event. Oh, it was huge, yeah. So can you elaborate on that? At largest special operations mission in U.S. history to date. So there's never been one larger than this one. Uh, our team, SEAL Team 3, was responsible for securing all of Iraq's oil infrastructure, their distribution, which was five different targets, uh, five large targets. Uh, one of those targets was the world's largest gas and oil platform, which was my platoon's specific mission was to secure that. And Saddam had promised to blow it all up if we, there was any hostilities. And so I put it into layman's terms. It was my job to go have a gunfight on the world's largest gas station that's probably rigged with explosives. <laughs> so it's like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, yeah. it was. And uh, that before the war could start, that had to accomplish. So. Yeah. And the war actually started, I think it's 20 some days early, 21 days early, based on the fact that they're the, all the workers on the one working platform were pulled off and a ship with a tugboat with a bunch of big boxes were loaded on. And so we went two days later, mm -hmm. even though we weren't planning to go for over 20 days, the war is going to start to almost two and a half weeks after it, it actually started. And so for that, it's amazing to think like for that moment, my target, my platoon was the center of all attention in at the highest levels in the, the U.S. government and the U.S. military because like a, nothing else could happen before that talk got taken care of. Kind of like, like going to the moon, right? Like everyone's yeah. eyes are on this. On this one mission. <laughs> it's kind of cool to think 
Like I would have never thought when I was a little skinny dork in high school wanting to be a Navy SEAL that it's at one point I'm going to be on what was the most important mission in the world at that point in time. What was your responsibility on that mission? I was responsible for tactical leadership. So I wasn't the most senior person in my platoon. I was one step down. Uh, he was, as you know from what we've talked about with leadership management, his job was to manage, my job was to lead. Mm -hmm. So within that piece, I did all of the tactical planning for that and then had to get the platoon ready to execute on that tactical plan. And then I was directly involved in the execution of that tactical plan on target. Yeah. And then interrogation. So I once we took uh, control of the platform, it was my responsibility to get as much information from the prisoners we took as soon as possible because we're now on a target that we are assuming uh, has the potential to be rigged with explosives. And when I talk about this is a large platform, largest in the world, it was uh, 12 football fields long. Oh. It was 1,200 meters long, almost a mile long. It could fuel four super tankers, 4,000-foot tankers at one time, uh, three football fields wide. It had two 12-mile, 12 12-foot 12 diameter pipelines feeding it. I mean, the thing's massive. Yeah. And so that was our job. 20 of us got to take that over. 20? Seems like a... Sounds like it was potentially a little understaffed, but... Yes, it was very severe. The original mission called for uh, 60 or 70 SEALs, but they kept expanding it. So the entire, I think it was like three or four platoons from SEAL Team 3 were going to secure that one platform. Mm -hmm. And then they gave us another platform. Then they gave us two pump houses. Then they gave us the manifold metering station. So yeah. it went from 60 SEALs down to, I think we had 20 or 24 total guys assaulting that platform so uh obviously you've been coaching my team and myself for almost five months now yeah it's right? um and then you know just finished reading your book very recently and one of the concepts that has really you know uh stuck with me is desired end states right yep. commander's intent so we're going to talk about it later on but can you just share real quick how commander's intent or desired end state applied in that situation so we can later talk about how it applies in real estate the that was a unique, that wasn't one of our normal missions, right? right? This this was a big mission, a really big mission. This mission, so the U.S. has battle plans. Uh, like if all of a sudden North Korea was going to invade South Korea, there would be, there's already a, you know, a book this thick with the plans for what we're going to do. Uh, this particular mission, securing the oil platforms, ever since the first Iraq war when Saddam had destroyed all the oil in Kuwait, like we knew mm -hmm. he wasn't full of crap when he was yeah. talking about what he'd do, uh, we had, there's plans for this, right? So those plans are very specific. They fit into the overall battle plans. So that one is, that was a very static mission for us, meaning there's an oil platform, go take it. Uh, most of our missions are not static. It's a very dynamic environment that we work in. It's ever-changing, highly dynamic, and lots of risk. With that type of environment, our commanders can't tell us, go, like, go take that house. Mm -hmm. Like they said with this, like, go take the platform, make sure it doesn't get damaged. Uh, from there, most of the time, if they were to tell us that, the world would change so much, even just on the way to the target, that we'd be in trouble. So... Most of the time, we are tasked with what they refer to as commander's intent, where he would tell us 
what it would look like, the battle space would look like after we were done, as mm -hmm. opposed to what we were doing. And that commander's intent gave us the flexibility to adjust strategies and tactics in that ever-changing environment while we're executing the mission. So it's the best way I liken to it is it's the reason why we're going out, not what we're going to do or how we're going to do it. Yeah. So the objective is why this objective is important versus what the exact outcome looks like. It's literally most of the time, especially like in business, you're telling people what to do. And mm -hmm. a lot of times people are telling people how to do it, right? Which is two layers too deep. Mm -hmm. Our, our commanding officer would tell us why we're doing something. It was our job to tell him what we were going to do to produce that fulfill on his why. Yeah. And then he would give us an okay, a, did we get it right? So we, he would never tell us strategy. It was yeah. our job to identify strategy. Yeah, but there's always like, here's why it's important. Yep, why is it yeah. important? That's it. Here's the why. We showed up with the what. And then as, a, as an officer, my job was the what we were going to do. My guys my leaders my my enlisted guys they told us how we were going to get done and yeah. my job was to follow them not actually lead them uh one of the things that and i know we're kind of we're kind of going a little bit differently than how i, I would normally do this but uh you know like i said it's been instrumental for my yeah. business uh the things that uh it's always felt like top-down management right like hey larry how many dials did you make today how many yeah. contracts did you have right and it just feels like i'm pulling this out of you right yeah. and it feels and it feels like micromanaging, mm -hmm. right? And the things that we've learned very recently with you guys is that it's not me requesting this of you, it's you're reporting it to me. My job to over-report. Right, your job to over-report. And then with, when I have the intel, now I can make decisions on the business because yeah. I have all the intel on the front lines. It's a completely different way of looking at business. The, it's, the, it's the concept Again, one of if I was to say what was like I talked about responsibility and feedback and planning, but the concept of leadership versus management was ultimately one of the biggest paradigm shifts that I had. When I go as a junior officer, so I come straight out of training, I'm out of training, I go get assigned to a team, I get assigned to a platoon, I walk into that platoon space, I would be the second at maybe the third highest ranked person in the whole on that platoon, which means I'm very high at the top out of 16, 17 guys. Yet I know the least, right? So I show up absolutely brand new, but they have to call me sir, and I can tell them to do anything and they have to do it as long as it's a legal order. Mm -hmm. If I go into that environment pretending like I can lead them to success, I'm gonna fail. I'm, it's gonna be dangerous. My job is to create a space for them to lead me to success because they have the knowledge, the experience, they have the confidence of, of previous action to get stuff done. Yeah. And so there's this real change that going into an organization and pretending like you know how to lead people to success is usually very wrong and ultimately very limiting. Whereas my job was to create the space for, for my guys to lead each other and me to success. That yeah. is, when my job is to create leaders around me, I'm infinite. When my job is to lead others, I'm very finite. Right, and this is conversations I have with Jaden, right? He's my, uh, yep. now he's my CAO, right? Uh, Coordination of Action Officer. Yep. And like, we've had conversations like, you know, who reports to who exactly? Like, look, like right now, you're there to support them so they can be successful. Yep. That's your responsibility, right? 
You're not leading. You're not directing, right? You're just giving them the space. Creating the space. To be successful, right? Uh, Create, other... enable, support leaders. That's yeah. it. And then the other thing, too. And ultimately, what's crazy is you, as the CEO, right, as mm -hmm. the most senior person, will often report to him. <laughs> Feels that way, yeah. You should, right? Yeah. Like, because at a certain point, he's going to need to direct your action yes. to get stuff done. And therefore, he's leading you, even though you're the most senior person. Right. That's how a SEAL team operates. Yeah. So it's interesting as we kind of had this evolution. Yep. Another thing, too, is because I just, you know, finished your book, like I said, how leadership actually works. Um, you know, the other concept that was, you know, kind of um, paradigm shift yep. is leader follower. Yeah. Right. So, like, for me, I'm a big Darren Hardy uh, fanboy. Right? I've learned so much from him, and a lot of my business success has been attributed to him. And uh, the one thing I took from him, not the one thing, but one of the major things I took from him was, like, I need to create a culture where I lead leaders. Yeah. Right? So I'm not managing people. Like, I'm empowering everyone to lead. But it stopped with upper management. Mm -hmm. All right? Like, I'm the owner, and I have all these managers, and I'm empowering them to be leaders. But it stopped there. Yeah. It didn't go all the way down to their front lines. Yeah. And here in reading the book, you're talking about like everyone on the front lines is also uh, empowered to be a leader in the right circumstances. Can you elaborate on that? Totally. Uh, so I'll, I'll cover two examples and I'll use SEAL examples because they're exciting. <laughs> <laughs> a lot better than business. Yeah. Uh, so we, there's a part of our training that we call uh, IADs, uh, immediate action drills. So immediate action drills are oftentimes we have to patrol to get to where we're going to do work. Uh, and you could do that by foot or vehicle. It doesn't make a difference. Say we're on foot patrolling to where we need to work and a bad guy starts shooting at us. We are now in action and we need to take immediate action to get out of that space. Normally, we're undergunned. Right, we're a small unit. We're usually running around with 15, 16 people, sometimes eight, sometimes four, sometimes two, right? We can be very small units and you can run up against 100 or 150. So our job is to, as soon as they contact us, our job is to get away. Like mostly we run away, mm -hmm. but we need to run away with them thinking that they just touched a much bigger unit. Right. So our job is to have them think like, oh, crap, like that's 200 people. Yeah. And the way we do that is through coordination of action. You can watch videos on YouTube of units getting in contact. And it, it, when they do, you might have one or two people shooting. If if you contact a SEAL platoon, you'll have all 16 shooting within seconds. Oh, really? Yeah. And so that seems like all of a sudden you touch this and it, it's like all hell breaks loose. And mm -hmm. on top of that, we as a, we as a unit, uh, a M60 machine gun. So that's a, a medium size belt fed machine gun in the army or Marines that will be run by up to four people. SEALs do it by one guy. One guy runs that weapon by themselves, and we have four of them in 16. That's the same as like 150 army men. Yeah. So you touch that, all of a sudden you got four 60s plus a bunch of, we'll have grenades and rockets. It's like, oh, crap. And on top of that, we move while we're doing it. So we're shooting, moving, and communicating at exactly the same time. So all hell breaks loose, and all of a sudden all hell breaks loose over here, and all hell breaks loose over there, and it keeps moving. That, that takes a lot of practice. 
And what we're doing with that is we will immediately go into action. In that action, we're constantly looking for an out, what we call an out, like how do I get out of the bad area? Mm -hmm. That out that can be found by anyone, right? As we're yeah. moving, the most junior guy can see that there's a depression in land, which is where we need to go. And he can take command of the entire platoon with no rank, no positional authority, and everyone will immediately switch into following him because he's now making the most effective choices and decisions at that time. So that, to me, illustrates a concept of lead follow. Mm -hmm. He'll follow until it's time to him for him to lead. As soon as he needs to lead, everyone else follows. There's no one's feeling gets hurt. No one's asked, like, no, you're, you're the new guy. Shut up. Right. You don't know what you're talking about. No one's feelings get hurt. It's just, and he knows what to do. It's immediate. And yeah. the other thing is, I could talk about planning being important. In a platoon, planning super important. Who do you think is responsible for directing planning? I mean, I guess in most cases, it's the visionary. Right. It'd be the senior people, right? With yeah. the most experience. We, the most junior person's responsible for the plan. Yeah. Which is nuts because they don't know anything. And it, there's a difference between being responsible for something and having the responsibility and holding it. Mm -hmm. So the most junior person will have the responsibility of getting the plan done, but they'll be responsible for managing all of the senior people that have all the experience to do the planning. So we're literally making the most junior person lead the most senior people in the task that they have the least experience in mm -hmm. to prove the point that everyone is a leader at every point in time. Got it. Um that's definitely a much more sexy example, right? Yeah, thank you. Uh, we could have talked about what we were doing on our call two weeks ago. Yeah. It'd been a lot more boring. Uh, so, because for me, like when I read that passage in the book, I was like, "Oh, this is actually a lot like what Sam Walton did, mm -hmm. right?" I mean, Sam Walton has the most, well, no longer the most, but was until, until very recently the most successful company in the world, right? Walmart, right? And how did he create Walmart? Is he literally just flew city to city, met with their front lines gathered intel from the front mm -hmm. lines and made business decisions based off what the front lines were saying. Yep. So right? he's following. He's following. The leaders that have no positional authority. Right. So there's a lesson there, but no one really held on to it. Yep. And then read it again here. It's like, all right, we should probably be doing that. It, the concept that, it, and the best way to define this, if you're trying to like orchestra or understand in your head is the primary role. So you have three positions on any team, lead, manage, follow. If at any point in time, even on a two-person team, if, if you're not holding lead, manage, and follow, you, it doesn't work, right? So even on a two-person team, all three have to be held. The primary roles of each, once you understand those, it makes sense. So as a follower, you're following when you're taking action. Like if you are actively doing something to move us towards a desired end state, you're following. If you're directly evoking action, and the key word there is di directly and evoking. So if I'm directly evoking effective action in someone else, I'm leading. If I'm creating the space for an individual to lead or follow, I'm managing. So my yeah. job as a manager is to create, enable, and support leadership at every level. If I'm taking action, I could have the title of CEO, but if I'm actually doing something, I'm not managing i'm not leading yeah 
And that concept of like, okay, leading and following, when I'm taking action, I'm following. When I'm evoking action, I'm leading. At that point, we notice, oh, all of us evoke action in other people every day. Therefore, every day we do some leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, so I read Traction a few years ago, right? I think a lot of people that are listening to the podcast have read Traction yep. or implemented some sort of Traction, some form, some form of it. And there's a difference there in their accountability chart. There's LMA, lead, manage, accountability. Mm -hmm. You say lead, manage, and follow. Right. Can you help me bridge that gap? You Tell me your understanding of LMA. Uh, so this person has to lead yep. the people underneath them, manage them, and hold them accountable. To me, accountability and manage are the same thing. Me. So the actions, I'll go into the act, my, what I consider the behaviors, the critical actions of a manager versus a lead follower. Because mm -hmm. lead, lead following, to me, I put leader and follower in the same category. They're the same, right? If you're following really, really well, you're going to naturally lead others into more effective action. So your most effective followers will become the leaders within your organization. Yeah. So lead man, lead leaders and followers are the same thing. So managers, I find, have three responsibilities. The first is to create and communicate the desired end state, the why, where are we going. Mm -hmm. The second one, and that might be what they mean by lead, right? Yeah. In that lead manage um, accountability. Second piece, it, once I have the clear desired end state, my job is to make sure that everyone has the resources, the knowledge and the authority to lead, right? To make good choices on their own. So that's a lot about education, resourcing, budgeting, that type of stuff. The last one is be a safety net in case of failure. Right. And that's one I've never heard anyone else ever talk about that. Right? No. The most effective managers in the world, the ones that create the best leaders, if you ask the leaders under the best managers in the world, how did you feel? What they inevitably will say is empowered and safe. Mm -hmm. Right. I can make decisions. I knew if I made decisions, they got my back. That critical role is unbelievably important. Now, accountability. Do I have to hold someone accountable, accountable if I create an environment where they're safe, they're empowered to lead, they have all the resources to do it, and they understand and hold the reason why? No, there is no accountability. I don't, yeah. It's automatic. Now, when we get into the actions of a, of a lead follower, clearly understate the desired end state, right? So, like, I will not allow someone to task me unless I understand why I'm doing something. Mm -hmm. Second thing is always collect resources. Like I always have to create knowledge, skills, authority, resources. The third one, which is critically important, is over-report information. So if a manager needs accountability, the, their followers, their lead followers, aren't fulfilling one of their primary roles, which is over-report. Right? Why as a follower do I want to over-report? I can't be wrong if, if you know everything I'm doing. All right. Right? I can't ever be wrong. You can change your mind, but you have to say you change your mind because you know exactly what I'm doing. If I'm over-reporting, then as a manager, I don't need to hold you accountable. Yeah. And the, the last one is the most important one, ask for help right? as a leader. So how do we encourage over-reporting? Because I think that's one of the frustrations, right? As a manager, you feel like you have to drag the people along. The, I would say the biggest thing is you have to... You have to create the environment where it, it means more to them 
to give you information than it means to you to get it. So how does do that do make that? sense? It does make sense. So, so how do we create that environment? What you have to understand their purpose. What yeah. do they care about? Right. And once I understand what they care about, then I can tie reporting to what they care about and they're doing it for themselves. They're not doing it for me. Yeah. If I'm making them do it for me, you're always, you're, you're pushing a boulder uphill. Right. I'm pulling it from you. Yep. I'm pulling it. No, you have to want to do it more than I need it. Yeah. And so I have to understand what's driving you. Once I understand what's driving you, that purpose, we've talked about purpose a number of times, mm -hmm. alignment and purpose. If I deeply understand your purpose, I can get you to do anything. Yeah. And so for everyone that's ever dealt with a salesperson that's not putting in their numbers, like this is, there's some, yep. there's some gold right here. Uh, the other thing you, you touched on was safety. And I think like I've worked with a lot of people that struggle with delegation. Yep. And one mistake I see all the time is if someone makes a mistake, they freak out. And if you, they make a mistake and you freak out, they're not going to make any more mistakes. And now you're stuck with a person that's frozen in action. Yeah, fear. Fear will freeze them in action all the time. So how do you empower people? Or how do you, how do you encourage that safety net? Because yeah. uh, it's something that I kind of have to like, I swear I have this conversation like once a week. So uh, probably everyone's not going to like this answer. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Um, you got to slow down to go faster. The I have to be three steps ahead of you all the time. I got to be three steps ahead of everyone all the time. Meaning when you fail, I have to have already understood what failure that's going to be and ensure that it doesn't hurt you or the organization. And I have to let you fail. So I will, the, my people uh, will often get surprised. It's usually only two times and then they expect it. They'll come to me completely embarrassed, upset, like, oh shit, I got to tell you what happened. I'm like, oh, this happened. Mm -hmm. You knew? Like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. And here's the three things I did to make sure that that didn't hurt you. It didn't hurt me. It didn't hurt the organization. And in that, they get amazing trust. Yeah. Now, and then it's like, okay, it's a learning point. Like, I created this space for you to learn. What lesson did we learn in this? So failures are never really failures. Like I said at the beginning, we plan to fail. Every mm -hmm. plan that we put together, we have 19 versions of it that go to crap. So my job is to, as a manager is to make sure that you can never hurt yourself. You can never hurt the organization. Yeah. And in doing that, you then have the confidence to work on it, like make, take chances, make mistakes and bring them forward. The other one, I'd say a big one is you have to create an environment where no is okay. Yeah. Can you expand upon that? Yeah. Most people it's yes. Like if the CEO comes and tell, if I go, Again, if you watch our calls, like I can get on a call, CEO, go to my junior person and say, uh, Matthew, I want you to do this. And you'll hear him say no. And that doesn't happen right. often. But we have a formula. You're allowed to say no if you tell me why it's a no and how you make it a yes. Yeah. So we want people to say no more than they say yes, because then their yes means something. If you say yes to everything and you don't hold your commitments, your yes means nothing. Right. And so that you have to empower your team to say no. Why are you saying no? And how do we make it a yes? Yes, yeah, a lot of people are going to have a hard time with that one. Um, so. Because they don't like, the, they don't want to take the time. Yeah. Right. 
So one thing that we had talked about and, and, you know, going through this training with you guys is that this is not necessarily principles you learned from the Navy SEALs. Yeah, none. I wish. <laughs> yeah. So how did you go from your experience in the Navy SEALs to get in a position now where you're able to speak on it? Like, what was that journey like? Yeah, it's what people take for granted, what they make the assumption is that I was sat down in SEAL officer class and they taught me all this stuff. And if so, I would have a lot less scars, <laughs> literal and figurative. Yeah. Like they know this wasn't it at all. And, and I was in an environment where you couldn't fail. Like I didn't get a chance to fail and learn and be an effective, an ineffective leader or else I would have died and people I loved would have died. Like it would have been bad. So I had to, you know, it was trial by fire in this crucible of war. And I got through with that and started a company and I made all the mistakes because I was just taken for granted that everyone operated the way the SEALs do. And it wasn't the case. Yeah. So that would, I, I would say would be the biggest thing is like a big difference between like Jocko's work and our work is Jocko and Leif, which are, they're amazing guys. They're from SEAL Team 3. Leif and I were at the Naval Academy together. Like they, they have good stuff, but they wrote that book right out of the SEALs. Like, and it is amazing, good content, but isn't based on business. Mm -hmm. Like you have to look, you have to look at how to apply that in a business. I, I started and ran four companies before I wrote a book on leadership. Mm -hmm. So the concepts of what you're reading isn't direct from the SEALs. What it was, was all the things that were wrong in, in the civilian world in normal business world. And I had this amazing example of a high functioning team. So when someone, something didn't work in one of my companies, I would go back and say, you know, why does Bo not do anything he says he's going to do? And why does John, it, it, as one of my SEALs, he always did everything I said he was going to do. What was the difference? And it was in that gap that I found these principles. Then on top of that, we were in very technical training companies and surveillance, counter surveillance products, uh, intelligence, counterintelligence, what we started with. Then we went into personal safety and self-defense and then school safety and business safety. But it was at the school when they started having us assess their bullying programs as a student safety concern. And I identified that they didn't have a bullying problem. They had a leadership development problem that leadership is using. How your, was that received? Um, it, you've experienced this a number of times with me. It's like a paradigm shift. Yeah. Initially, it was like, what are you talking about? And I said, well, <laughs> leadership is using your power to help someone. Bullying is using your power to hurt someone. Mm -hmm. If you have bullying, you don't have leadership. Like it is, that's as easy as it is. And yeah. at that point, like, oh crap, you're right. Right. And so then their immediate response is, well, can you have a, can you write a leadership development program for middle school? Yeah. As a SEAL, like no one could ask me anything that I wouldn't say, yes, I could do that, mm -hmm. even if I'm wrong with no intent to do it. And two weeks later, they had a funded program. Mm -hmm. They came back and said, we're ready for your program. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I had to write a leadership development program for middle schoolers. So fifth, sixth, seventh grade, eighth grade. And the kicker was the teachers union wouldn't allow us to train the teachers in the program because they didn't have any time in their schedule. So we had to use teachers 
that we're opening a lesson on respect the morning of the lesson and sharing it with a fifth grader, which meant that we had to distill very complex things down to these fundamental principles. And it's those fundamental principles that are the foundation of everything we teach. Because yeah. once you boil, if you can boil communication down to a fifth grade level through a teacher that is untrained in it, you've got literally the gold of communication or respect or leadership. So that's where it all came from. That's fascinating. And uh, you're talking about intelligence and counterintelligence. And I think that's great because when I first met you and Annie at Collective Genius, yep. I was looking at both of you guys and I was like, okay, that's a couple that I don't want to mess with, <laughs> right? One's a former Navy SEAL and one I think can kill me with about anything. Her mind. Yes, yeah. that's, she'll make you want to kill yourself. That's the dangerous part. <laughs> yeah. The guy at least comes straight at you yeah. with, with weapons. She'll just make you want to jump off the roof. <laughs> She's strong with her mind. So yes. the other thing too, uh, you know, and going through this, you know, hopefully you guys are getting value from this. The Jason Medley, right, who runs yep. against CG, I kind of share with him. I was like, you know, like in talking to Larry, like, man, it's like really profound, really uh, grounded, right? Really um, almost like um, Buddhist or Taoist, whatever principles. And it's like, Larry is kind of like a Gandhi that's killed a lot of people. <laughs> so, just the bad ones. Yeah, just the bad ones. So, um, And no more. I try to stay away from that Yeah. at this point. So in the book, there are six pillars. Yep. What are the six pillars? So I look at these as these, these are the pillars of high performance. And for me, and this is something I think we connected very much on, was the, the power of language and precision in language. And so for me, these pillars are just how I break up a very complex thing into functional pieces. So we start with success. Uh, we have, I think one of the biggest problems that's been produced by our school system is that in order to achieve something, right, to have high performance, you have to work hard and suffer today for the prize, the accomplishment tomorrow. We've been tr taught that from the first time we went into school based on a school system being designed during the Industrial Revolution where we need factory workers, right? Factory mm -hmm. workers need to be, no, like today's going to suck, but someday you're going to get a gold watch in the retirement. We are long past that, yet yeah. our school system is still based on it. And so we as entrepreneurs get stuck in this trap of if I just keep grinding today, someday I'll have success. And that is fundamentally flawed. Right. So redefining success into something that is sustainable over a long period of time to produce an optimized daily experience is the first part of it. The next connection that we made is that as a human being, our success is 100% dependent on our ability to coordinate action with others. When we coordinate action well, oh, hang on. so you're going to the second yeah. pillar. So before getting to the second pillar, I just want to touch yeah, on sure. this, a couple of things on the success, right? So first, I remember when I when you first met, said yep. this, right? Because we were going through our coaching, I was like, crap, right? My definition of success is kind of what was programmed into me. Yeah. And there was a lot of like, there was like a few weeks of like reflection, right? Because yep. you know, like, uh, we didn't go to get ice cream if we studied hard, right? If we turned in our homework, we got ice cream if we got 100 percent of the test. That's it, right? We rewarded. Uh, we were re rewarded results, the accomplishment, not the accomplishment, not the behavior. So we have this achievement addiction, right? Uh, it's accomplishment addiction. Yeah. Goal or objective, one after another. Right. So there was, uh, and it's as I'm going through this, right, I was like, man, like everyone, or at least people I network with, has this problem as well. 
That's why I've I've worked with three billionaires. I mean, and big. I can't share their names here, but like very well known, big name people and miserable. Yeah, they can buy anything they want in the entire world. Their families for the five generation buy anything they want, and they're miserable based on the fact that there is nothing left to achieve. Yet their entire sense of self and worth is based on achievement. Right. So, and I remember I had a private conversation with you and Annie. And one thing that I think kind of surprised you guys was like, knowing that I have this accomplishment yeah. addiction, I'm actually a happy person. Yeah, I, I'm very surprising. <laughs> I'm glad yeah. <laughs> you're not miserable. <laughs> yeah, so, but I know that a lot of people that are, yeah. unfortunately. So, okay, so uh, that's the success. So how does someone flip that switch? The core piece is that success is not an accomplishment. Success is a feeling that a human has. Mm-hmm. Like that's the big awareness. Like we, we always believe that a, we connected accomplishment and success together, but it's not true. An accomplishment, it can be done outside of a, a human, right? Like a business can accomplish something. A business cannot experience success because mm-hmm. success is a feeling. So one, understand that. So success is an optimized daily experience, sustainable over time. If I have all the accomplishments in the world, but that's not, that's misery to do it, and it's not sustainable, I'm not successful, even though I have accomplishments. Yeah. And so shifting the focus on what are we focusing on? When we focus on fulfillment instead of accomplishment, we get both. Yeah. If we focus on accomplishment, you'll never be fulfilled. How do we find fulfillment? So fulfillment has to be driven by an internally, a deeply held internally derived purpose. So if this is where comparison gets us screwed. So if I'm comparing, and it's really bad in the real estate space, (laughs) right? Like, because it's all about how many deals, what size of deals, all that stuff. Plus social media. And social media. So if you fundamentally understand this, it, it can help. As soon as something else determines my purpose, even if I achieve it, I can't feel fulfillment. That's a huge piece, right? Mm-hmm. So if I look at you and you have a really nice car and I'm like, I need to have that really nice car. You've now given me my purpose. I get that really nice car. It still feels empty because I didn't deeply and internally want the car to begin with. Mm-hmm. So anytime that I'm comparing myself to someone else, I'm setting myself up to suffer to accomplish something that will give me no fulfillment. Yeah, it's a crazy trap. So See, that's why social. That's why I'm not on social media. Like, I, uh, I can't be because it's literally designed to make you miserable, feel insufficient, so that you will be a consumer. Uh, and pillar number two. Success can only be experienced as a human through tightly coordinated action with others. So team becomes pillar two. Yeah. Our ability to team determines our success in life, both the the feeling of it, like we were just talking about, Mm -hmm. and the accomplishments. You can't accomplish anything big on your own, and you can't feel good even if you produce an accomplishment at the cost of the connection with others. So the guy says, I did this all on my own. He's miserable fuck if he actually did. I don't know (laughs) if I can say that. Well, it's too late now. It's live. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Beep that one out. <laughs> yeah, so, all right. So if the guy says, like, I did this on my own, he's miserable. Odds are. And yeah. he's trying to prove something. Why? Because yeah. he's miserable. 
because right. he doesn't have people in his life. And it's not true. He's got clothes on. He didn't sew them. Yeah. He learned something from someone. He didn't create that knowledge on his own. It's impossible for us to survive on this planet, much less thrive. Our level of thriving determines on our ability to coordinate action with others, our ability to team. Yeah. The most successful people in this world team at an extremely high level. The homeless people on the side of the road can't coordinate action with themselves, much less people willing to help them. Yeah. And maybe that's the reason why I'm a giant Elon Musk fanboy. Yep. Right? Like he's coordinated action to very, very high level doing um, impossible things. You know, potentially civilian, civilization changing yep. things. And by the way, guys, like all the stuff we're talking about here, like it's all in this book, right? Um, yeah, I, how leadership held back. <laughs> yeah, how leadership actually works. So uh, definitely check that out. I got this off of Amazon. It's amazing. Um, so team. Uh, so where is language in Is language in pillar one or pillar two? Uh, language is before you're even allowed to have a pillar. Okay. Because right? we talk about the concept that, well, it's good that you brought it up here, right? So our ability to coordinate action with others determines our success in mm -hmm. life. It determines our experience of life. As a human being that is un, not handicapped, my ability to communicate, my ability to use language is my easiest tool for coordinating action. So to me, language is our most powerful asset for production of success. Yeah. The, the better and more effective my language is, the better I coordinate action with others, the more success I experience. So I'm bringing this up because I... I was, as, again, as I was reading this book, I was thinking, like, did Annie close me, right? Um, because on, on, on the conversation where she was, you know, you know, talking about all the different options, she's like, Steve, would you like to be on these calls, right? And I said to her, of course I want to be on these calls. Whatever you guys are speaking, whatever you're teaching my team, I want to be able to speak the same language with this stuff. No. That was my thought process. But then I'm thinking as I'm reading this book, like, did Annie put that in my head or was that my idea? You put it in your head. Yeah. yeah. So I have to ask her directly. But I suspect you're, you're correct. All right. Um, what's the third pillar? So six, your success is determined by the teams that you're on. The teams that you're on is determined by your behavior. So behavior becomes the third pillar. And behavior in two flavors of it, your individual behavior and your ability to influence others' behavior. So behavior change. Yeah. Uh, our ability to change our behavior is what enables us to optimize teams or get invited onto a team be on a team so we're you'll see it continues to get deeper and deeper right mm -hmm. our success is determined by our teams our teams are determined by our behavior and that leads us to our fourth pillar where our behavior is determined by our ability to self-regulate so before we get into self-regulation you have a distinctionary i do distinction larry is what they say is that what distinction larry yeah. okay uh behavior i think could be is a term that everyone all agrees on the definition. So what do you mean by behavior? Behavior are the observable actions that are repeatable of a human being. Yeah. So how they... And behavior to me is repeatable. Got it. Like behavior, an individual action is not a behavior, mm -hmm. right? So we can, some people have actions that are not repeatable or predictable. That's not behavior in my book. Yeah. So how they act repeatedly yes. is their behavior. Is behavior. Another and, word for that would be their culture or their personality. Those are all the same, to me, very similar words. Yeah, and if your behavior is not optimal, you're getting voted off the island, you're off the team. You're not gonna be on a highly effective team. Yeah. So your, your level of behavior determines the team you get to be on. If you mm -hmm. have highly effective behavior, you'll actually be kicked off a of low functioning teams. 
That's an interesting thing. It yeah, works. I've never both heard of this. Think about it though. If you're super high functioning and everyone else sucks, what You'll do they do? You'll probably leave. I don't know if they kick you out. You would, no, probably. they leave because it, all it does is show how ineffective their behavior is and they can't have it. Yeah. You've probably been on that before or you've been in a team where you're the higher functioning person on it and they don't want you around. Yeah. I don't know if I've been there. I think I've just kind of like left. I was like, oh, you, you left. I was like, I, I don't yeah. know what is going on here. I don't know what, <laughs> what you guys are doing, but I am out of here. Yeah. So you'll notice that, that it's the same thing. It's like yeah. you're a bright light around dark and the dark doesn't like the light. So they're going to yeah. want you off. Just like if you're low functioning on a high functioning team, they want you out because yeah. you're an anchor. That's interesting. Yeah. It's both sides. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, so behavior then would you say is in a way the your level of function Yep, so for the way we determine functional level is size of commitments and consistency of mm. holding those. Yeah. So if you're, you have effective behavior, you make big commitments, and you hold those commitments really well. Yeah. And, that's, and you can see how this works, right? So if I make big commitments and hold them well, then I get to be on teams that make big commitments and hold right. them well. We're talking about like A players, yeah. right? If you're, on a, if you're an A player, you get to play on A teams. You're a C player, you're getting kicked off that team Use pretty your, quickly. Yeah, that's where self-regulation. Use yeah. your self-regulation to change your behavior to become an A player. Yeah, so self-regulation is next. Self-regulation is the next. So self-regulation is the ability to use my intention to modify my behavior. And that comes in physical, mental, emotional flavors, right? So physical self-regulation, mental self-regulation, and emotional self-regulation. That means I can use my intention to control my emotions. Yeah. So say I feel really scared to be on this podcast. I can use my self-regulation to continue to take action despite my fear. Power through it. Yeah, to power for it. Say you start to really question or push me on what I'm a point I make. I can use my self-regulation not to punch you in the face. <laughs> right? Is that emotion so, or mental? I'm not sure. It's, it, combination it's there. it's emotional right <laughs> self-regulation uh leading to the need not to physically self-regulate <laughs> so that ability to use intention to control our behavior mentally physically and emotionally mm -hmm. determines our behavior and our ability to change our behavior so yeah. it becomes a foundation of behavior and the last step is last step of or last pillar two more two more so we've got four so far Think of these four as the foundation of high performance, right? Success, team, behavior, self-regulation. At that point, we start to, we have to master those of ourselves or at least get good at them better than those around us. When we start to, to illustrate effective behavior in all four of those pillars, we're going to produce results. When we produce results, that's automatically going to evoke effective action in those around us, which is leadership. So mm -hmm. the fifth pillar is leadership. Leadership being where I start turning from internally leveraging those four pillars to externally helping others leverage those four pillars. When I do that, I'm leading. It's very natural progression. Right. And people want to follow. Because you're effective. Right. If you're ineffective, if you can't do those first four, good luck leading. Well, then you're going to be like directing and no one wants to listen. Micromanagement. Yeah. Right. Then what's By the last someone that has no authority? What's the last pillar? So we get to pillar five. Now all of a sudden we got momentum, right? Because if you start having the ability to have people make big commitments and hold them and direct the commitments they make, 
now all of a sudden we get movement and that's where planning comes in so planning becomes our final pillar and that planning gives us the ability to direct the energy or the power that we produce through the first five so uh we had a call um a few weeks ago and this right here number six pillar number six was kind of like a, a shocker to me right so uh, the example I've always used is like, I'll take a car, right? Maybe a Prius and I'll go like a hundred, right? Yeah. And it's kind of shaky, right? <laughs> but, but it's fine, there. right? And then we'll go 110. It's like, okay, we have a problem with this Prius. Like, let's pull over or let's go to the pit stop, yeah. get some new tires, maybe some new brakes, right? And see how we handle Like, okay, now the, the, the suspension is yeah. okay, but the wind noise is pretty bad. All right, let's maybe get us, go to another pit stop, get a spoiler, Whatever, right? Now we can go 120. Spoiler. You go right to spoiler. Whatever it is, right? <laughs> but something to, yeah. to fix the, 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 the airflow, right? And I will keep going to whatever breaks next. Yeah. And they will fix that. And this is like my journey in 15 years of business. Yeah. Right? Let's go fast, break something, fix it. Let's go faster, break that, fix it. Let's go faster. And it's how I've lived my whole career. Yeah. And then I hear this thing about planning. And there's actually things you can do to prevent things from breaking. You could. It's amazing. It's crazy to me. So what are those three things we do to prevent or at least be prepared for something to break? So the first, the first thing I like to share is it's the same mindset. Like you have someone and I'm, I'll tell them, like, hey, you need to plan, do some planning. And what's their first I don't have time. Well, I don't have time. I'm like... <laughs> Okay, this will be the easiest. This is like a softball. <laughs> so you, d you don't have time to do a plan. What is that telling you? We're going to have a lot less time later on. We should probably plan. Yeah. Like when you don't have time to plan, mm -hmm. like when we get over capacity, when we're going 100 miles an hour in the Prius that's shaking, mm -hmm. what, what always shows up is you stop learning that's the first thing you give up when mm -hmm. we're going fast. Mm -hmm. Next thing you give up when we go fast is leading, right? Leading effectively. It's like, mm -hmm. I'll just jump in and get it done, right? I, like, yep. I'll hold the windshield on. And then the, la the third thing to go is planning. Like, we mm -hmm. don't plan. We don't have time to plan. We just re respond to whatever fire we got. Yeah. And when you're in that environment, that's the world screaming at you that you don't know something. Mm -hmm. You need to coordinate action better. You need to lead better. And you need to plan. Yeah. And so that's like the first thing I like to get across is, well, it's so easy as an entrepreneur where you're just overwhelmed. Like that was the other big thing we did on the last call that we talked about is we're so overwhelmed because there's so many things to look at because mm -hmm. it's not just the brakes and the tires and the airflow. It's, you know, are the doors on? Who's riding the, who's riding the car? Where are we going? How fast are we going mm -hmm. there? What time do we have to get? There? Like, do we have enough gas to get there? It's just so many things to pay attention to that you don't know where to put your focus and attention planning is one of the tools that we use to to identify where do i need to put my attention like mm -hmm. you may be working on the, the tires and the brakes when in reality you really need to work on the fuel pump and the amount of the gas tank mm -hmm. and so using for me it's always process and structure right using a structure to ensure that i'm putting my attention in the right place enables me to coordinate action at a higher level which then enables me to have more success yeah and so there were three actions, though. There was the... Desired end state. No, there was the, uh, like, backup plan, the... Uh, oh, for uh, after-action reviews. Yeah. Was it after-action review? It was yeah. the... Avoid, mitigate, backup. There you go. Yeah, so we call it the ultimate solution tool. There you go. Um, yeah. 
like I said at the beginning, every time we do a plan, we'll do one plan that's perfect, and then mm -hmm. we do 18 plans that are all messed up, right? All the things that are broken. In those plans, one of the things that we identify, the structures that I put in place, is every problem we would identify, and we would identify problems before we started the car, mm -hmm. right? So before we got in the Prius. I don't have time for that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> before I got in the Prius, we would say, like, what could happen out there? Yeah. We'd identify the problems, and then we'd solve it three ways. We would come up with a solution for avoidance. Mm -hmm. How do, What could I do today to avoid the problem showing up when we start driving? Mm -hmm. What could I do to mitigate it? So say I try to avoid it, it doesn't happen, the wheel shake comes anyway. What do I do to mitigate the effect of that? Like, How do I make it not hurt so bad that the wheels are shaking? And then... The third piece of it is I tried to avoid it. I couldn't. I tried to mitigate it. It became catastrophic. What's my backup plan? So the wheels actually fell off when I'm doing 100. Yeah. What's my backup plan to get to the objective? And that simple formula is so amazing anytime you have a problem. Yeah. Even if you're in the problem, like say you didn't listen to me and you aren't doing this ahead of time and you're driving down the road. As soon as we identify wheel shake, okay, what can I do to avoid the wheel shake? What can I do to mitigate it if it shows up? And what can I do to back, have a backup plan in case it's catastrophic? Yeah, and there's a couple of things, right? Like first, when you said it, I was like, God, that's such so common sense, right? <laughs> yeah. And it was like, uh, I, I shared the story, like when I learned how to snowboard, like when you're learning how to snowboard, everyone falls off when they get off the lift, Yeah. right? And I was falling off, getting off the lift, and my buddy's brother says to me, he's like, why don't you just stick your foot out so you don't fall? I was like, obviously. Right. And so I don't fall anymore. Yeah. Snowboarding. Right. And so like everything you say is so commonsensical. It's, it's crazy to me yeah. that we didn't do this before. Um, it's, I, I used to say it's, these are simple concepts. They aren't, they're elegant concepts, yeah. right? Like an iPhone is not a simple thing. It's an elegant solution, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that it comes with no instruction manual and I can give it to my dad and with no instruction manual, he can figure it out. The amount of thought, design, process, structure, discipline that goes into creating such an elegant solution is critical. And it's to me, that's what I've done is I've spent so much time distilling complex things down. It creates the environment to have an elegant solution where you're like, oh, yeah, I knew that. That's easy. Yeah. Because if it's e if you knew it, it was easy, then you can actually implement it. Right. Uh, so I want to talk about one last thing before we go into questions. So law of leadership. Um, Larry's golden rule. Yeah, Larry's golden rule. And like, again, one of those things, like when you said it, I was like, oh, geez, like, how was I missing it? Uh, can you elaborate on the law of leadership? Yep. So the golden, Larry's golden rule of leadership. Do not lead the way you want to be led. Lead to the functional level of your team. Right. So we generally as entrepreneurs are higher performers than those around us or we wouldn't have chosen this and wouldn't still be in the game that means that generally we want to be given a goal or objective and left alone to figure it out mm -hmm. so we like to be empowered to take action because of that we think everyone else is the same right everyone else is like us and they just need a little bit of direction and they'll just get it done they'll figure it out How's that working for you? Uh, well, it took a long time to figure out it wasn't. It, yeah. And for most of us, yeah. we live in frustration because that isn't what happens. Right. So we go back to the fundamental thing I talked about of functional level. So size of commitments and consistency of holding them. If someone is high functioning, meaning they have, they make big commitments and they hold them all the time, 
they get to be empowered through light influence, right? I just kind of influence their action. They're empowered to take action. That would be on the one side of it. On the other side of it, you have low functioning where they either make little commitments and are inconsistent or they make, can make big commitments and be inconsistent. Low functioning people, they need to be controlled through force. And as an entrepreneur, most of us, what we do is over empower our team, right? They're lower functioning than, than what the way in which we're leading them. We lead them that way because that's how we want to be led, but we're high, higher functioning. Mm -hmm. So I've never been one for leadership style. To me, this isn't style. You can use whatever style of leadership you want as long as you increase the control as the functional level of the individual or team goes down. Yeah, and again, it was so common sense when you said it to me, Yeah. right? But I was frustrated in this one capacity until you helped me uh, kind of bridge that gap. So guys, if you guys get value today, you know, um, again, check out the book, How Leadership Actually Works. Uh, we also have uh, sealteamleaders.com. Uh, the promo code is disruptors. You'll get 10% off. Uh, you guys can check that out. Like, I'm not kidding when I say, you know, Larry's had a profound impact on, on my team, right? But not just that, right? Working with you and Annie, yeah. uh, I feel like I'm a better leader, uh, a better uh, uh, husband, and a better father as I'm, as I'm learning these principles and, and applying it, right? We're using desired end states in conversations at home. It's amazing because they're all... That's what I love the most about distillation is this is as applicable with your 14-year-old daughter as it is with your wife or your spouse or your, your business partner or your team. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. They all work the same way. Yep. So, um, and then real quick again, before we go into questions, guys, we do have our live workshop coming up next month. Uh, go to uh, disruptors.com slash blueprint. Um, or maybe disruptors.com slash closers up. I'm not sure. The team will put up the right... Uh, uh, information, but go check it out. We're going to be going over two and a half days, how my company works, right? How our wholesale operation works, everything from lead intake to following up to all the different systems, hiring, firing, a lot of the things that we talked about here right. at a high level, but how it applies in our actual business, right? So go check it out. Two and a half days inside our office and let's go ahead and go to the question. So we already have people buying it and we also had people say, thank you for your service. Uh, so, uh, first question I got here is from Summer, who you got to meet earlier, right? Um, this might be a difficult question. Okay. Uh, knowing what you know now, would you have still joined the service? So, like, it's, it's been a long, hard recovery, right? It's mm -hmm. been 14 years and I'm never going to be the same. Uh, it's, it's a challenge based on the fact of not only what I got to do, the people I got to do it with, the skills that I learned and the benefits that I've been able to leverage from that experience to now what has been hundreds of thousands of people that we've, we've worked with, I would say, yes, I would just based, and I've kind of built to sacrifice myself. So mm -hmm. that's part of it anyway. Like, yeah. yeah, I'd still sacrifice myself. I think the be the, the better question is I've got two young boys, a, a eight-year-old and a five-year-old. Would I want them to be a SEAL? And the answer is no. No. Like, definitely not. Like, I would, no, I would not want them to do that. On the other hand, the day that I walked into my first platoon, I finally felt at home. Like, I never felt like I fit anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I fit in and got to be who I really was with no filters. That 
is what I want them to feel. If they need to feel that by being a SEAL, great. If they need to feel that being a cross-dressing ballerina, great. I yeah. don't care. I want them to feel that. So I would support them. But if it was up to me, the answer would be no. The cost is too great. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a key point here, right? We're talking about the suffering. Yeah. Um, what is, besides the obvious physical <laughs> trauma, what are some other things that you know you had to undo? Because I saw it when I was reading your, your thank you at the very yeah. end, right? Like there were people that you had to go and like sit down with and journal and oh, um, to undo yeah. a lot of the psychological a lot trauma. Of this work, yeah. yeah. The uh, for me being a leader, being an, uh, an officer within it, uh, I had to put myself in a place to make decisions in which my best friends in the world could die, and I had to ask them to go into environments that were extremely high risk. Uh, I had to know that. I ha might have to make a decision to tell you to go through that door. And as soon as you do, you're going to get shot mm -hmm. that in order to do that without hesitation, I had to create a massive, uh, psychological break between my, my emotional and physical selves, meaning mm -hmm. I had to give no concern for my physical well-being, And I had to have no, I'd experience no emotions. Cause if I experienced an emotion, it would create a, a time gap in the decision. I didn't make people die. So, that's what's been hardest to heal of, of mending those parts of my psyche. Like mm -hmm. there's to this day, I walk around sometimes bleeding. I don't know. Cause I just don't feel it. Right. There's times where I pick metal out of my body. It's bleeding. I'm like, Oh, that's not supposed to be there. Yeah. Right. It just didn't feel it. And, and that emotional disconnection of not experiencing emotions creates an impossibility to connect with other humans, uh, at a deep level. And that's a big cost to pay. Were you that way before you joined? Like, or I was predisposed to it, mm -hmm. um, both by uh, I'm on the autistic spectrum and the Asperger side of things, which means I don't connect with humans normally, the normal way, and I don't never really experience emotions the same as as other people. And as a kid that I was a little dorky kid in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. I got picked on quite a bit. I learned to not allow my emotions to to direct my actions, which help build that capability for what I needed as a, as an officer in the teams. Yeah. Cause I'm asking these questions cause I've got, I think through different influence, right. right? From parenting or whatever. Right. I also am pretty self-contained or yep. really tightly controlled as far as emotions goes. Like self-regulating my emotions is not a necessary yeah. <laughs> effort. Right. Um, and so, you know, uh, the, when we were going through this exercise, I kind of made, I kind of share these stories with mm -hmm. my kids too. And my kids are like, no, dad, you have emotions. You have two. I'm like, okay, what are they? Like happy and angry. That was mine. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I wasn't happy. It yeah. was normal, neutral, whatever we would call yeah. that and angry. Well, then I shared, I asked, uh, uh, I was on a call with uh, Paul, uh, Paul Sparks. We're, we, we have a new joint venture together. And I was like kind of sharing with him. I was like, hey, you know, I know people are upset in these negotiations and be really tough. And it seems like I'm not warm and fuzzy, but look, that's just who I, I am. Yeah, I do I, care. <laughs> right. You just can't see it. It's like. So I talked to Vivian, she's in the backseat, like, hey, Vivian, you know, can you just share with Mr. Paul, like the two emotions I have? And she says, oh yeah, it's anger and disappointment. It's like, that's not what we agreed on. <laughs> <laughs> disappointment <laughs> replaced happy. Yeah, it's like, man, that was not the conversation. But yeah. I, I, I really appreciate that answer, right? Would you have your kids join this deal? So uh, Josh Campbell on Facebook, I'm sorry, Josh Chappell uh, on Facebook, what's the best way to teach your leaders these concepts? To teach? These, these principles that we just talked about? How can his team best learn these principles? So, Josh, I'd say the 
the most important thing you can do is have the right language and the precision in language. And that's where, again, I'm not pitching the book, but get the book because we have all of the language laid out. If you can just start to get your team to start using the words leader and manager coherently across the team, uh, it, to have an understanding of what responsibility is, the parts of it, uh, those that language within the organization will have the biggest impact. And so yeah. that would be my basic suggestion. The other thing, if you go to howleadershipactuallyworks.com, there's an assessment. That assessment will lead to the course site, but there's a distinctionary on that assessment. So yeah. at a minimum, go there and start looking at those and sharing those with your team. And if you can get your team to be able to kick out those those distinctions, that's yeah. going to make a huge difference. So Jaden doesn't know this yet, but we're going to go to the distinctionary and we're going to make placards and yep. cards at each one. So everyone in a company speaking the same language. Uh, but to add on to that, Josh, what I would recommend is just what I did. Hire Larry and his team. <laughs> yeah, it would make it a lot easier. <laughs> hire Larry and his team to coach our team, right? Because um, when I hired you, it wasn't because I was like, oh, you know, like, let's go ahead and hire Larry. It was I was making a decision. Yep to uh, let my team uh, take over all the teams yep. and I am removing myself. And I would just feel a little bit more confident about letting go if my team had you know, one last leadership training that they can go through together. And when Andy's like, do you wanna be on it? I was like, of course I wanna be on it, right? Yep. Like, and so in going through that journey, my team has leveled up so much, but what I didn't expect is that I leveled up yep. so much in going through that journey too. Yeah, there's, a the goal that you should have as a father and as a ceo is to become irrelevant right you like my job as a father is to be irrelevant to my children's lives because then they're actually free mm -hmm. and when they're free i can tr we can truly love each other with no right. connection but as long as they need me there is there is not pure connection there and it's the same thing in a business my yeah. job is to create a business in which I am absolutely irrelevant in every way, shape, and form. And at that point, I've created something of significant value. Right. And that was the objective when we yep. reached out to you. So I feel a lot closer. To being irrelevant? Yeah. Good. I'll yeah. join you there. Island of irrelevancy. <laughs> we can have fun. Absolutely. Um, so uh, Lotto on YouTube is asking, what do you think of Space Force? Do you know, what do you know about the Space Force? I know Squad other than the, the Apple TV show, which I love. Yeah. Space Force. Yeah. I didn't even know we actually had a Space Force until relatively recently. I met someone on it. Part of the thing that's interesting for me is I pay attention to zero news mm -hmm. and social media. Nothing. I consumed zero news because I was on the front lines where we were the biggest news story there was. And I'd come back and watch it and find out that every channel had a different story that was not true. And I found out how, just how much it is just entertainment. And it's entertainment that has me not feel good. So I... I don't consume any of it. Yeah. So I have no idea. But if it's anything like the Apple show, <laughs> I'm glad we have a space yeah. force. <laughs> well, so I was, I remember when I was going through training, uh, my sales trainer uh, years ago, and we were talking about like, you know, um, fear and pain and so on, right? Like, cause there's like present pain, present pleasure, right? Those are two most powerful yep. motivators. And then future pain and future pleasure, future pleasure, right? And future pain is, is fear. Mm -hmm. And he asked the question, like what industry thrives off of fear? And his answer he was looking for was insurance, right? yeah, yeah. which does make sense. But my answer, my brain went to news. Right? Oh, that's all. Whether that it's Fox News or MSNBC, fear, fear, fear. It's the only thing. And what's crazy about future 
future and past, right? Mm -hmm. Is that when we have worry, like this is what blows me away. In the present moment, we're good and feel good. Mm -hmm. When we worry, we take the thing that we don't want to experience in the future and bring it into the present so we can experience it today whenever it doesn't exist. Yeah. Like it's absolutely pointless. I'm going to have you uh, record that or we'll slip this out later and share it with some people I know. Um, the Dana uh, follow question on YouTube. If you had to fire entire staff, how would you mentally re rebuild quickly after burnout? You burned out? I'm guessing he, uh, Dana's burnt out, yes. If you have to, Dan, if you have to fire your entire staff, you did that, right? Just to be clear, like you created that mm -hmm. either based on some previous traumas that required you to do it again. Mm -hmm or based on not having a lack of a lack of knowledge and skill. So first I'd give yourself a break, right? It's not your fault and it is your responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's your responsibility, it's not your fault. So within that, my biggest thing would be you you got to do some personal work before you start again or you're going to recreate the same thing. And this is something we haven't talked a ton about, but one small segment of what we do is we found that the biggest limitation of growth of a structurally sound company are the unresolved traumas of the CEO. Mm -hmm. And when we started applying the, the battlefield trauma techniques that I was using to heal myself and other SEALs to executives, the growth was astounding in their companies. And so for something like that, that's to me some sort of unresolved trauma that you have in your life early mm -hmm. on we need to fix that before you start it again or you'll create the same story all over again. So it's crazy. So we talk about pillar one, we talk about success, and I was like, oh crap, I need to figure some things out for myself. <laughs> and I meet with Annie. Yep. And she helped me uncover some of the things, right? Yep, and early on stuff. And it's like really simple stuff, right? Always is. But, you know, all that stuff, you know, the jokes, right? You know, like the Asian kids and whatever. Yep. But apparently it did impact me, right? Mm -hmm. More than I thought. Um, but as I go through this exercise with Annie and we learn about childhood trauma and my childhood trauma is not severe, but it existed. So severity of the childhood trauma depends on the effect it has today, right? Mm -hmm. Like we like to think, well, because you didn't, you weren't in a car bombing when you were three, mm -hmm. it wasn't severe, but if it's impacted your life for 30 years, that's pretty severe. It's a very interesting point, right? Like it's it very doesn't matter. Point. The impact is what yeah. determines the severity of the trauma, not the trauma. Right. We pretend like unless it's a big trauma, it doesn't count. That's not true. Yeah. Trauma is merely a lesson we learned when we felt out of control. Right. So if that lesson was strongly learned as mm -hmm. a little kid, it could have a massive impact for your life moving on, regardless of if it was your parents yelled at you once. Right. And well, so with that experience with Annie, and it was like an hour and a half, right? Yeah. Um, a is like, completely change how I approach some conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, and B, it's kind of like, you know, when you learn something, you kind of see it everywhere, you know, the oh, particular yeah. activating system. I see childhood trauma everywhere. You can't help it. Is that something that you, like, is, okay, that person is dealing with this. This person, like, yeah, does that go through your mind? It's weird because Annie and I are an amazing pair, like, because we see the world in two different ways. When she sees you, she sees what you should be without your trauma mm -hmm. like she sees your perfect self as as a higher power made you right mm -hmm. i see what is causing you the all the problems to not be that today so like i see you today with all the traumas and she mm -hmm. sees what you would look like with none 
And it's painful for both of us because you see someone that you care about, you know, and you're like, oh, man, I'm seeing all the things they're causing their, their problems with. And mm. she sees them the way they should be experiencing life. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a pain. It's a it's a burden. And we also had to learn that it's not our job to like I could heal all that quick. Like we could spend 10 minutes in the next hour. I tell you all the things that you need to fix. Mm -hmm. You have to want to let go of your trauma because your trauma keeps you safe. And people that aren't ready to let it go, when you try to take it away from them, they feel like they're going to die. I've never heard the expression or the phrase, your trauma keeps you safe. It does. That's all it is. So trauma is merely the lesson you learned mm -hmm. in an environment where you felt like you didn't have control. Mm -hmm. So that trauma is the tool that your subconscious uses to make sure that you survive in the future. That's it. If you think about this, say I'm in a... I'm in a big traumatic thing and I die, I don't suffer trauma. I right. only suffer trauma when I survive, and trauma right. is what I learned in that experience. Got it. It's and what's when I overuse to your psyche. it, yeah. I create stress. That's post traumatic stress. Got like it. for me, people try to kill me for 10 years. It wasn't a joke. I wasn't making it up. I wasn't delusional. People actually did for 10 years. For 14 years, I lived where in a world where no one was trying to kill me with the lesson that everyone's trying to kill me. Yeah. That created stress in my life because it wasn't true. Yeah. Uh, guys, if you have any other questions, please post them in here or post them on YouTube, post on IG and so on. Um, we'll see. What were some other things that I wanted to ask you? Because uh, we've gone through a lot of different things. Oh, yeah. Uh, one thing that's uh, it's interesting, you know, like we're going through, again, your, your training and there is so much overlap with my training, yeah. right? Fundamentals. It's, it, it's crazy to me, the, 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 the communication principles, the, the reasoning, the ideas behind it. Uh, for me, I learned it from sales training, yep. which was very generously borrowed from um, psychology, yep. right? Like a lot of the sales principles that work, they work for psychological reasons. That's it. Right? Human reasons. Human reasons. So like, I went the same route through neuroscience. Yeah. Like I got really into the neuroscience, how the brain works mm -hmm. and how that drives behavior. That's where I went super deep in it. And once I started going and understanding the, the way that human brains work, then all of a sudden I had an insight into principles that would then yeah. work in other domains. Yeah. So just so you know, so I'm in trouble later on. I am stealing some of your stuff and applying it in my sales training. Please. Because FYI. <laughs> I've told you this. Our, you know, our mission is permanent positive change. That's yeah. why we are so free with content. Like If we have the ability to, to, to leverage another person's avenue to get this into other people's hands, we do. And if we don't directly benefit from that monetarily, it's going to show up somewhere. So yeah. we are, we're as free as can be. That's why like in that book, I, I love at the very beginning, I give a warning, like this is a hard ride. Like this is not easy. This is your brain's going to hurt at the end of this yeah. because I don't hold back. It's not like I'm holding back the best stuff that you'll come to me and I'll sell you training. That's everything there is. And we also know that it's going to melt your brain three mm -hmm. or four times and you might need help. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, last question here from uh, social media. If you can start life over again, will you do everything the same or take a different path? I would take a different. Do I know what I know now? Knowing what you know now. Knowing what I know now, hell yeah, I would take a much different path. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a, some everything from small ones. Like, I wouldn't go into the SEALs as an officer. I'd go in as an enlisted, enlisted 
deal first, mm-hmm. uh, get a couple years as an illicit deal, and then I'd still probably want to go the officer route. Um, I would have gone slower. Like I was, I was always striving towards the next big thing. So I'm a high performer, so I didn't enjoy the experience because I was trying to get onto the next unit, the next thing, the next bigger task. Um, I would not have started a business directly out of SEALs. I would have worked for someone else, other startups to learn all the lessons. Like that was a, that'd be a huge one. Yeah. Um, and I'd start asking for help earlier. Like yeah. those, are, if I had to just kind of say big ones, those are the big ones. Uh, what is your biggest struggle right now? My biggest struggle right now is success. My life, my daily experience is not what I want it to be. And it's real frustrating to know it and to see it on a regular basis. And, and I, I feel not in power to be able to change it. Like my schedule, my timing, what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that, that's mostly based off of my trauma of I need to suffer for success. Like I haven't healed that yet. So yeah. as I heal that, I'll be able to change it. Cause no one, I'm the one that makes my life miserable. No one right. else does. So you know what it is and getting your own way. So what, what is like one, like the most, uh, the major thing that you're doing to yourself that's causing you this? Uh, overscheduling. Overscheduling? Yeah, it used to be that I wasn't in control of my schedule. Mm. I was super reactive and I've gotten that. I've got a decent EA with that, but it's overcommitment, right? Like committing to too many things. Trying to do too many things? Trying to do too many things. And I don't have someone regulating me on that yet. Yeah. And so that's where I, I need some more work. And the other place is, and we were talking about this before with purpose, right? Mm-hmm. My purpose has not come from internally derived from me. I was doing it for my family and for creation and the benefit of other people. And so that's why I think a lot of things feel like struggle when they don't need to. And so I yeah. need to do some more work on getting clear on my purpose and then saying no to a lot more stuff. Yeah. And I think that's like incredibly um, like profound, right? Like, we sp- we speak on these topics, right? Yeah. And we we speak with with authority, like we understand it at a deep level, but it doesn't mean like we've got it all figured out. That's why I say the reason I'm teaching everything is because I need to learn it better, and I'm very open and transparent and vulnerable with that. Of like, yeah. don't look at me as as perfect. Yeah. I understand it. I think better than just about anyone. I I can speak it better than most people that I've ever met, but I'm still actively working on it, or I wouldn't still be teaching it. Yeah. That's deep. Um, what is your superpower? My superpower is distillation. Yeah. And I can't, I can't get my head off of something that I don't understand. Like if I don't understand something, it's stuck until I do. And I understand through distillation and I can distill th- complex things down into stuff that people feel like they are remembering. Can we say distillation in a different way? In a, distillation in a different way? Yeah, in a more layman's terms. Yeah, so um, I'll give you an example. Uh, we talk about power all the time, mm-hmm. right? Power is in all sorts of stuff. We need power. We have power. That's a source of power. There's a form of power, 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 power. You look up power on a, in a dictionary, it's useless, and it's not universal. Um, I've distilled the concept of power into a few words, the ability to influence change. That's four words, mm-hmm. but that those four words apply to power in any way, shape or form. Electrical power applies, influences change in a light bulb, creates light. 
lightning is un uncontrolled power that will change if it hits your building or your car or you military power yeah. political power um interpersonal power physical power mm -hmm. you know martial arts right no matter what in any way shape or form if you distill power to its fund the most fundamental nature it's the ability to influence change yeah. that's what distillation is and Got that's it. what i do that really really well uh what book have you gifted more than any other getting things done from david allen i don't think i read that one yeah it's a it's a it's a system for um organizing tasks email structure life like his big concept is that and this is true in our brain our brain doesn't know the difference between i need to pay my taxes or i'm going to get arrested or the light the light bulb is going to is out on my back porch right those open loops our brain doesn't can't our brain can hold open loops but it can't hold comparison comparative values mm -hmm. so when we run too many open loops our our short-term memory gets overwhelmed and we can't do anything and so his concept is how to close loops and make sure they show up at the right time so that's the one i've probably given to more people and that's the one i've bought it four times because yeah. whenever i get out of line it's because i stop closing loops in my life and so i use that one to get back all right so i'll have to check that out um why don't you leave the um uh... What do you think about thought you want to leave the listeners with? A message while I make just a couple of quick announcements. Guys, if you have value today, please like, subscribe, share, comment. Um, like I said, this uh, having Larry on, he mentors me and my team, right? So I'm hoping you guys got value out of it. So definitely uh, share this message. And then we do have Blockchain Whales. Uh, 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 do check that out. And then next month, we do have our blueprint live in my office, two and a half days. Again, going over how our wholesale business runs from A to Z. When you walk out of our office, you'll know exactly what you need to do when you go back to your office. Um, and we do have Matthew Potter next week. Uh, he is uh, an agent with Real, with me, and um, he's doing consistently 30 plus transactions every single month. So if you wanna hear his journey, how he's worked with hedge funds and so on, do tune in, do tune in next week. All right, what are some last thoughts you'd like to leave all the listeners with? The last one, I still think this is the most important one, and we've already said it a couple of times, but I'll say it again. Your success in life is 100% determined by your ability to coordinate action with others. Anywhere in your life where you are struggling, you are not achieving what you want to achieve, experiencing what you want to experience, it's because you're not in the coordinated action you need to in that area of your life. Like that, that has changed my life more than anything else. Yeah. So let me ask a question. I know it's supposed to be my last thought, but I have to ask a follow-up question because we, uh, I learned before the show that you're a maverick. Yes. Mavericks tend to not be the best at coordination, at coordinating action no. with others. No, I'm not. <laughs> so how does that reconcile? Or how do you, how do you uh, address that if yep. you are a maverick? I, and this came from Jocko mm -hmm. uh, Wilnick. Uh, freedom through discipline. Uh, I believe it beyond anything else that discipline and structure gives you freedom mm -hmm. so i'm a maverick i don't court by nature i don't coordinate well with others and i don't want to be around anyone like i would rather just be by myself mm -hmm. most of the time 
So anywhere I have a shortcoming that is not going to lead to the life I want, I put structure and process and use my discipline to be able to leverage those processes and structures. And yeah. so that I, that's how I not, not them together. I can be a maverick and knowing I'm a maverick, I'm not going to coordinate well. So I put processes and structures in place to be able to ensure that I coordinate well. That makes total sense. Um, so uh, how can someone get a hold of you? They can get a hold of me. The best way to get a hold of me is through right now, how leadership actually works.com, same title as the book is going to be probably the best place. I know we have that set up with the book and access to all the tools that we were given away free with the book. Uh, I think it also leads directly to uh, contact with our team. Mm -hmm. And so go that direction. That's the easiest. That's going to be the most direct for me. And the other thing is I will respond, right? So my team is trained that if someone reaches out, they have a problem that they our team can't immediately address. I see all those things. So uh info i think info at seal team leaders as well would be get it's going to come across my desk quick if there's something that someone that needs help i'm going to fix this real quick uh in the chat um so if your greatest challenge is over commitment yep this book is amazing thank you right uh it's gonna be required reading for everyone that joins our organizations moving forward i think it'll be busier yeah i think so moving forward so um Thank you so much. Appreciate everything you've done for me. My pleasure. We're just starting too. I know. It's, I gonna, know. it's getting good now. It's getting real good. Thank you guys for watching. I'll see you guys all next week. Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve all right. Train. So I think you have enough time. We real estate disrupt us. You started your wholesale business and you're finding success. You want to start scaling, start creating your legacy. You're looking for a blueprint. Our three-day event, June 16th to June 18th, teaches the blueprint for what you'll need to grow your wholesaling business. The forms, the processes, the systems, the sales, the A to Z from finding sellers and everything else in between. Go to disruptors.com blueprint to secure your spot. Thank you for checking out today's episode and hope you enjoy the show.